Hello and welcome back to Working Man's Pod. We're back on our bullshit. <laughs> we're talking about the Grateful Dead again after a two-episode interlude where we were talking about Dead and Company. Today we're talking about Dave's Picks Volume 46, uh, which is a, a great show from Saturday, September 9th, 1972 at the Hollywood Palladium in Hollywood, California. As you heard in our latest, no, second most recent episode, um, introducing the DNC in 23 series that we're going to be rolling out this year, Dave's been dealing with uh, a loss in his family, and so he's kind of coming back and forth between South Carolina and New York. So he was not able to join me for today's entire recording. So what we're going to do is I'm going to go through all the stuff that we usually talk about off the top. We're going to talk about history, this year in Grateful Dead history, what this tour was like, the venue. Then Dave is going to come join me for the most important part, the set list. We're going to talk about the music together. So we'll keep this pretty tight because we've spent a, a good bit of time talking about um, 1972 and also about this specific time, uh, fall of 1972. This is One Drummer Dead Without Pigpen, um, post-Europe 72. His final show with the dead was a few months before this show. There was only one show between Vanita, 827-72, and this concert, September 9th of 1972. Vanita, of course, one of the Dead's best known and most revered shows, and so this one is kind of coming on the heels of that legendary night in Grateful Dead history. The top album in the land on September 9th, 1972 is Chicago 5, Chicago V. Um, Saturday in the Park was the big single on that album, and that, that song rules. <laughs> um, it was number one on the Billboard charts for two months from, mid, from mid-August to mid-October. The number one song in the land was Brandy, You're a Fine Girl by Looking Glass. That was their debut single and their only number one hit. Um, number one hits are hard to come by, so that's perhaps not that shocking. They only came out with two albums in their entire discography. Um, and so... You know, Looking Glass is a song that still lives on today. It was in one of the Guardians of the Galaxy movies and had a brief resurgence on the charts for that, but still a a song that's played on classic rock radio, I would think, mostly every day. Birthdays on September 9th. We got some good ones. Otis Redding, uh, another um, legend of, of a similar era as the dead. Joe Theismann, football player. A deadhead? who you might not have known was a deadhead, Adam Sandler. His birthday is September 9th. Also singer Michael Buble, actor Michelle Williams, and basketball player, now golfer, J.R. Smith. It is also the date in 1965 when Elvis appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show for the first time. So some, some good events on September 9th throughout history. All right, well, let's talk about this year in Grateful Dead history. Like I said, we've talked about 1972 quite a bit, so we can, I think, kind of zoom past this part of the show. But I will give you guys one little new taste of uh, info from 1972. And, you know, if you want to hear more about 72, we have so many episodes in our backlog about it. We have a 72 retrospective um, with... Uh, Zach Cropper from Rock Talk with Dr. Cropper that came out in December. We did one about Vanita last year for the 50th anniversary with Jonathan from the Broke Down podcast. That's one of my favorite episodes that we've done. We talked about Europe 72 with Zach as well um, last spring. 
and so, so we've got a lot of 72 content out there for, for you to go listen to. But a stat that I, I learned when I was preparing for this episode that was somewhat interesting to me is the top songs, like the, the most played songs for the dead in 1972. They played 86 shows this year. And in 82 of those shows, they performed playing in the band. I thought that that was kind of interesting. That means in virtually all of the shows, you were you could expect a play-in. In 75 of the 86 shows, they played Black-Throated Wind, and same goes for Sugar Magnolia. Um, I think that that's kind of cool, too. They were just really digging those songs that year. Um, and then rounding out the top five, you have El Paso, 70 times played, and Casey Jones at 69 times played. Uh, China Rider, um, both of those songs were played 65 times as they were playing them together at this point in time. And that was number six, if you were looking to know what just missed. This tour, Fall 72 really has a bunch of tours. I think that this run would qualify as a bit of the, the prelude to their first leg of the Fall 72 tour. It started with four shows at the Berkeley Community Theater, then the Venita Show, one at Folsom Field in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, that was a week after Venita. And then these two shows the following weekend in Hollywood. And then a week after this show, they kicked off their real tour, um, their East Coast tour, I should say, I guess, on September 15th in Boston. So they toured all around the East Coast, and then they had a second leg in October that went throughout the Midwest. So a lot, a lot of these shows from the fall run have already been officially released. Um, This is the ninth from the period of time between August and October. Dave's Picks 24 is one of the Berkeley Community Theater shows. Uh, There's the Vanita show has, of course, been released. How about three Dick's Picks from this fall run? One from New York, one from Baltimore, and one from Philly, volumes 11, 23, and 36, respectively. There is the 30 Trips Around the Sun show that from that box set. That was the Waterbury Theater show from 924. And then all three shows from the Fox Theater in St. Louis were released two years ago on the Listen to the River box set. So a ton of attention has been paid. Oh, I guess this is actually the 10th show now that I think about it after I just, you know, walked through those. This is the 10th out of the 30 shows from August to October to be released. So one third um, have been officially released by the band. So I think that that can kind of tell us how fondly Dave and Dick and the the powers that be at Grateful Dead Industries, what they think about this section of shows. And I think it's warranted. They were playing really, really well. And it's different enough from Europe 72 that I think that it warrants a lot of attention. You know, the big difference is there's no pig pen. That really makes it so that you are losing out on a lot of those songs that they were playing so well in Europe. Donna is becoming a more a more um, front-facing part of the band during these shows, for sure. Um, and then there are also some songs that they weren't playing in Europe that they're playing now, most notably Birdsong which they are just crushing in the fall of 72. And for whatever reason, they never played in Europe. All right, let's talk about the venue. So the Hollywood Palladium, that's still open today. You can still go see a show there if you'd like and you're in the area. It was opened on Sunset Boulevard on Halloween 1940 by Norman Chandler. He was the third publisher of the LA Times. 
The construction cost $1.6 million, which is the equivalent of about $30 million in 2023. And it was built in a really unique Art Deco style with a massive, massive dance floor. 11,000 square feet of, of dance floor was in this, in this joint. The opening concert was a dance featuring Tommy Dorksey and his orchestra. Um, if that name sounds familiar, Frank Sinatra was, um, was the singer at that point in time for that group. Uh, it's a, a standing room only venue capacity about 4,000. So not quite as big as some of the other venues that the dead were playing around this time, uh, a bit more of a, an intimate environment. These were the dead's last two shows at this venue. They also had a two night run here in August of 71. Um, and there've been some other famous events here. The final concert scene in the, in the blues brothers movie was filmed here. Um, as was Richard Pryor's Live on the Sunset Strip and Dave Chappelle's 2016 Netflix special, The Age of Spin. Um, At that same time, around that same exact time in 2016, it was listed on the National Register of Historic Places. So a legendary place and a place that the dead, um, I'm sure, were thrilled to play. I think that about does it for setting the stage for this event. Um, One more thing to talk about before we kick it to... Um, my conversation about the music with my co-host Dave. One more thing to talk about before we kick it to um, the meat of the show, my conversation with my co-host Dave about this release. Talk about the artwork. Um, I really like this cover. So you may be able to picture like kind of that classic um, Hollywood or or LA scene. I think that there's one in Boys in the Hood. There's a recent show called Snowfall. There's one in Clueless where it's just, you know, people driving down Rodeo Drive or something where those beautiful palm trees line both sides of the street on a sunny day. And life is good in the Golden West. That's kind of what's going on here. There is a picture of uh, a woman holding a rose. And she is in kind of interesting blue colors with stars um, and moon shapes um, filling up her her outline. And then on the sides and in the background is that palm tree row um, that I was just describing. And then behind that is what looks to be a big old sun just taking up the whole background. Um, the color palette is yellow and red and darker red and blue and, and darker blue. A little bit of teal, too. It's a cool design. And then um, on the inside, you have kind of a, a similar wavy pattern as that front cover with some palm trees back behind the CDs. Um, each of the CDs is that blue with stars um, and moons that we see inside the the, the woman who's on the cover. And then, like usual, we have some cool little um, segments of the newspapers that were released around the time of this show and some liner notes that include a picture of um, the dead at this performance in the back and some liner notes from one David Lemieux. Um, he talks about this show and how it came to be that they chose it, things like that. Um, It's also worth noting that this show, because it was in um, L.A. in 1972, it was recorded by Bear, by Owsley Stanley. 
and it, it sounds great. I mean, you can really pick up what's going on. There's some times where I feel like you can't hear Keith as well um, as I'd maybe like to, but Dave and I will get into all that. So I guess on that note, let's just let's call it a day and let's get into to the meat of this conversation. Let's kick it to Dave and I talking about the music that is Dave's Picks Volume 46. As promised, now the gang's all here. Dave, welcome. You missed uh, an intro that I just gave about all of the surrounding circumstances, this venue, et cetera, et cetera. But we've talked a lot about 72, so you knew all that good stuff anyway. I knew some of it. I'll probably retain a little bit of it from our friend Dr. Cropper's four-hour 1972 expose so it'll be all right expose is almost short selling it it's like that <laughs> episode documentary-esque <laughs> yeah. deep dive well the entire documentary long strange trip is four hours and one minute so there's wow. literally a documentary about the grateful dead that is just a little bit longer than his episode about 72 <laughs> and that just goes to show that we are a dedicated bunch, we heads. Um, so yeah, Dave, um, we are talking about Dave's Picks Volume 46, uh, a pretty good, powerful release. Uh, we are also both Dave's Pick subscribers, so we got a bonus disc, which um, we're not going to get deep into here, um, but that contains selections from 9-3-72 and what was the other date? 9-12-72? Sorry, 9372 and 91972 at Folsom Field and at Roosevelt Stadium in Jersey City, New Jersey. But what we're going to be really talking about today is this 9972 show at the Hollywood Palladium in Los Angeles. So off the top, I guess um, maybe give me some high-level thoughts about this release. High-level thoughts about this release. I think that this is going to be similar to Dave's Picks 41 from 77. Um, part of the reason that I say that is based on the liner notes um, and kind of, it feels like this is a show that they've been sitting on for a while to release. And that was similar to Dave's picks 41, which if you remember was in consideration for Dave's picks one. And then it, this one, they were in discussion to release as a Dick's picks. So it's a show that I think I'm guessing Dave Lemieux really enjoyed has kind of sat on for a while and is now out to the masses. And I think like Dave's picks 41, it's a show that the CDs are going to be in the rotation pretty frequently. Um, Cause it's a fun show and the liner notes say it all with two words. It's party dead. And it's a, it's a fun party to listen to. That's the overarching theme. Those are my high level um, high level bullet points. Love it. I think you're right. I think that there's stuff on all three of these CDs that, that I will continue to listen to and that I'll go back and check out again. Well, on that note, let's just get right into it. Disc one is all from set one. It's eight songs beginning with Promised Land, a classic opener. They played it 131 times to open a show, but this is only the 13th time that they did so. They debuted this song at the end of Europe 72, um, and and then they they were really playing it a lot as a show opener. So Although it would end up being played a lot as an opener, this was still early on in its in its heyday as a as a old reliable show opener. It's one of two Chuck Berry songs that we would get during this show. 
Right. They open and close set one with some Chuck Berry, which that's, that's right. Interesting. It is. So this promised land, I just have a couple notes. Number one, I like this tempo. It feels a bit restrained, but it's very nicely played. And around 220, there's like this super playful, it's like just a touch carnival-esque lick that Jerry starts playing that is um it has shades of my favorite ever promised land from Atlanta in spring 77. So I was a fan of this version. I think it's a like like you were just saying, party dead. Like this is like a good party, party rocker, uh, a good way to get the people up and moving. What you missed in my intro is that the Hollywood Palladium is a big dance hall. Um, it's all open mm-hmm. seat, uh, not even open seating. It's just a giant dance floor. Um, Eleven thousand square foot dance floor is the in- the entire basically building. So everyone's up and dancing and moving throughout this show. So I think that it's really a perfect fit for the venue and for the time. And um, I think it's a, a, a good opener to this set. I agree. It's the tone setter that lets you know we're in for that party dead, raw energy, upbeat time. It's like the thesis statement at the beginning of the musical essay of this is going to be a show to dance to. And it makes sense that it's in a dance hall. Yes. And then it, it would be a show to dance to. So from Promised Land, we get Sugary. This was the most common post-Promised Land song to open a show. So of those 131 times, 47, they went from Promised Land to Sugary. Uh, makes sense. You got a, a Bobby Rocker and then you get a nice nice little Jerry tune where you kind of take the energy down a little bit, but you still got some some good danceable vibes. Thoughts on on this Sugary? Drumming and Phil stood out to me the most. Um, Phil is like all up in your ear. The, I mean, basically the entire show, but especially especially this whole first disc. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought it was just fantastic. And to that point, bass solo. Let rather than Jerry shredding, Phil goes on for a bass solo, and it's just a just a statement by him early that this is his <laughs> show and he's going to own it. Um, I think Jerry maybe tried to do like. A little too much with vocally at the end. Um, I think he was reaching a little bit, but other than that, Phil just stood out and stole the show on the sugary. What about you? So I agree. I've got a note that around the three minute mark is when Phil's playing just takes on this really bouncy vibe. That's a little bit different than what he'd been doing before. Uh, And I like that Jerry picks up on it and how he kind of adjusts to what Phil's doing in his playing. The crowd is loving Jerry's first dalliance with shredding. It happens around like 145, 150. Um, not really an opportunity for him to really shred on Promised Land. So this is kind of the first the first moment of that in the show. I actually, I noted how much I like Jerry's vocal performance at the end. I liked that he was putting some stank on it. Oh, okay. I said last minute or so, it sounds like he's singing from his chest. Um, I like that he's, he's, I think from even lower, like his toes, like he was really (laughs) reaching for it. Yeah. For me, that worked. I wish Keith was a little bit louder in the mix because I like his playing, but it's not super easy to pick up. Um, And that's true in the, the versions that you can hear on re-listen. I remember thinking last year that that was it. I know that because I have my notes from last year um, when we were listening to a lot of 72 shows Um, and I still felt it on the CD. I just wish he was a little bit louder, but you know, it is what it is. From Sugary, we go to me and my uncle. If you thought Phil was really <laughs> killing it on Sugary, those bombs that he's dropping at the beginning of this song, I think are even more of a, like like you were saying, a statement of like, I'm on tonight. I got this. Yeah. He just, his playing is super groovy and relentless throughout this song. Um, and I think it's another another really good Phil performance. I actually 
to the contrary of the last one, I don't think this is Billy's high point of the night. Um, I think that he gets off tempo a little bit a couple times. And so in what I think is a pretty strong showing overall, or at least not a weak one from him, this was a song where I was like, Ooh, not, not his best work. Yeah. And I think, I think this really cooked, but I didn't, I didn't note that the drumming was the reason why, I mean, the reasons why were Phil and Jerry, yeah. I mean, the two of them just absolutely pushed this me and my uncle to the limit. Um, the cymbal crashes early on were exciting, but I'm like, I'm at the end of me and my uncle, this, like this really peaked high. I was like, Whoa, I did not expect that to to say that about me and my uncle, that that was the peak of the first three songs, but here we are. (laughs) Well, especially because it's less than three minutes long. It comes in at two 59. So you see that maybe on the CD and you're like, okay, so it's just going to be like a kind of stock me and my uncle. But then Jerry rips off this tight little solo around 125 that just is great. And then he just takes it, that like beginning of the Indian bead string that he's built, and he just starts to keep adding beads, adding and adding and adding <laughs> all the way until really the end of the song. Yeah. Like that just like keeps going through the verses and to the end of the song. And so, yeah, I, I think that this was uh, very, very good, me and my uncle. Um, I noticed that you don't have any notes heady version wise for me so far, just nothing impressive with any of these three. Well, I mean, you know, not at an official release before this. So you're wondering, you know, are these going to be a little bit lower? They mm-hmm. are. Um, the highest that we've talked about so far was actually the opener promised land is number 150. Everything wow, else deep. is below that, but that's about to change as they move out of me and my uncle and into bird song because we are in that era where birdsong expectations are high. If you remember, Jonathan drafted birdsong number one overall in the Vanita draft. That show is like, what, two or three weeks before this. So, I mean, expectations were high when I saw this on the set list, and I was not disappointed. What about you? Nor was I. And it's funny, I actually did a little bit of um, heady version sleuthing myself. Um, yesterday, and then you texted me this morning and asked me if I could find out how many times they played Birdsong in '72 for you. Um, but I'd already done this research before that, and so mm. I was I was ready to go. So here's some facts for you. Um, like you said, uh, Jonathan from Broke Down Palace, um, excuse me, from the Broke Down Podcast, took Birdsong as his first pick of the Vanita draft, um, and for a reason. That's an amazing version. So every page on Heady Version is 15 entries long, right? So on that first page, 15, five of the top seven even are from 1972. Move out to the second page, six more. The third page, five more. The fourth page, four more. 20 of the top 60 bird songs on Heady Version are from 1972, and 28 of the top 100 are as well. They only played Birdsong 39 times in 1972, and 28 of them are in the top 100 on Heady version. Oh, my goodness. Well, yeah, I mean, that just reinforces where we are with this song at at its absolute peak. This one, I mean, I know it's part of that top 60 that you talked about. At the 440 mark, Jerry's like, Jerry's high up on the neck, Bob is low in the rhythm, and then Phil is like, way up on his bass being loud and that's a cool little trio that they got going on there and then the vocal harmonies i thought were just perfect i mean just to kind of make a put an exclamation point on fantastic musical playing the vocals were outstanding 
Um, and again, the theme of this show is party dead. This is not a soulful searching bird song. This is a grooving get up and dance bird song that goes, goes pretty heavy. And I, I liked it. Completely agree. At the beginning of this song, I like when you can pick up on a little bit of the stage conversation. And at the end of me and my uncle, you can hear Jerry go, what bird song? And then I think Phil replies, yeah. <laughs> and then we're <laughs> off to the races. Um, it's a 12 minute version, which is typical for 1972. And it's just a, like you said, a typically excellent rendition for 72. I think that the part that you were just talking about with all three of them was between 545 and 635. It's just a great example of what made these three so special together. They're, they're, way that they're all playing together and then um there's this part where jerry is just like burning down the house bob's adding some great flavor and then at 703 they all just meld back together but especially um jerry and bobby they're just like back with each other and on this like the bird song theme um and it's just tremendous also right after that 705 to 725 bill is just perfect it's that like dramatic stop and restart that they do with this song yep and the dramatic toms and then this killer drum roll from bill that kicks us back into the back half of this performance i think we need to do a longer sample here i think we need to get like a good minute of this please yeah because this was this was excellent So yeah, I love the the bird song. I think there was a great emphatic conclusion at the end. It sounds like the audience loved it too because they go nuts at the end of this song. Um, and then the band takes it down a level. They take it. They by that I mean they they try to like I think calm things down just a little bit with Black Throated Wind because the beginning of that song is a bit more halting and you know 
deliberate and then mm-hmm. it builds up as it goes. I don't have a ton of notes on this one though. It's just as solid as a black throated wind can be really Keith and Jerry's interplay in the last minute was the high point for me. And I think Bobby's singing is really good. He's got a little bit of an edge to his voice um, on this song that that really works for me. Yeah, I, I agree. The highlights in the second half of the song between like the four thirty and the six minute mark, everyone's on Keith. It was kind of the first time you could really hear him stand out. So he got into the party for the first time. Phil is so loud, but so enjoyable it's volcanic and it's the number 54 black throated wind on heady version 54 okay all right so from from black throated we go to an old favorite of ours we go back to tennessee we don't think we've talked about this in quite a bit i know which is you know, we go through these stretches where it's just all jed all the time and now we've had a little break from jed <laughs> But my first note here is, I love it, but I am a Jedhead after all. As we've established, I am a, a born-again Jedhead. Um, I have to accept that about myself at this point in time. Recently converted. Yeah, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I thought this was a, a good Jed. Phil's bass is really interesting. I love this like start and stop thing that he's doing between like 3.50 and 4 minutes. Um, and then Jerry's solo around the back half, like 5.30 mark, just really works for me. It's like a prototypical jed solo for me see i i'll push back a little bit on that because i think the tone of his guitar was like a little different it was like less bluesy and a little more like hollow southern rocky mm, interesting. and i i when i first the first time i listened to it i was like hmm i'm not sure if i love that and then the second time i listened to it it was like you know that's not my favorite but i gotta admit it it works here it it sounded decent. Um, but, but I mean, that's just a small point on what's overall just some of the most crisp guitar work in set one of the two of them together mm-hmm. is here at the beginning of this Jed. I, it was a nice, a nice return to a song that we hadn't talked about in a while. Yeah, I agree. Um, we also haven't talked about the next song. Actually the next two songs. I don't think we've talked about in a little while, Mexicali blues and then deal. For Mexicali, it's another kind of like that, um, like that me and my uncle that's comes in pretty short. Same thing here. It's a very tight Mexicali. Um, it's like they're running through it. And that's kind of the only note that I have was so fast. I don't have notes. <laughs> um, I don't really have much else to say about it. What What do you got? Yeah, I thought the drumming stood out here other than that i thought it was kind of an average mexicali bob sounded okay not his best um how many times did they play mexicali blues throughout their their lifespan 443 okay um so this is number 206 on heady version out of 209 versions so it's (laughs) We're getting way down to the bottom. <laughs> I thought it was like average. Look, the masses can be tough graders, but I mean, this is like in the bottom two percentile, basically. Um, yeah. But if you take the other, like the Optimist glass half full version of that, the masses did also 
put it on to heady version in the first place. And that's it, true. It sounds like there's about what 120, 140 versions. 200, even... 200 plus 200 ah, and heady version. Yeah. 224. If my quick math is correct. Okay. Um, or 234, something like that. So it is in the top half. Then if you think about all the ones that are excluded. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a positive show. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah. So this is a top half Mexicali that we get. Um, yeah, I agree though. It's, pretty uninteresting um, within the context of what we're, what else we're hearing here. The deal as well. I mean, you and I both love deal. You know, we, we do. Yeah. We, it's the theme song to our show. I love Keith's playing on this and I think that it is overall a fine version, but just not the far from the best deal. Yeah. agree with that. Um, it has a little bit of a slower tempo, but it kept the party dead theme going I think because it's to this point, it's Keith's best piano work of the night. Um, and I think that that helped, um, helped some people get up and dance a little bit to end disc one. Yeah. I agree that it is his finest work thus far. Yeah. So that ends disc one, but it does not end set one disc two continues on with the final three songs of the first set, including um, what I believe is the longest song in set one playing in the band? Is it just a bit longer than bird song or is it a hair shorter? They're right around the same longer. Yeah. Yeah. They're right around the same runtime. Um, but this playing in the band. So they played it as I, as I said in the introduction, when Dave was not here 82 times, which is the most commonly played song of 1972. They played it in all but four of their 1972 concerts. And this is just a typically great 72 plan. I think that, the jam they get into around the end of the four minute range and then it goes out to about 555 is really great. And I love that Phil and Keith then take them into a slightly jazzier space around six minutes before Jerry starts building back up his Indian beat string and um, really gets cooking again. And then just really kind of the whole middle jam of this song. I just think is wonderful. Jerry has these little phrases that he keeps kind of playing around with. He really finds one that he likes and then just works on it over and over and over again. Maybe until he's satisfied with how he got it to sound, maybe just for whatever reason it, that struck him in the moment to stop doing it. But no matter the reason, I, I love that playing. It's like he's finding it as he goes and it's really interesting for me to listen to. So I thought this was a, a really nice, even by 72 standards, a really nice plan. Yeah, I did too. Going back to that point you were talking about, that 630 mark begins a journey where Bob and Jerry are like having dueling guitar solos, but it it works. It's like it's off enough and a little frantic enough to get that like play-in energy, but it's also it's also unified enough to like keep you dancing and moving around.
after all of that to me is is the end upon the return phil like blew out my headphone speakers on his return <laughs> like oh my goodness and then i really liked what keith was doing at the end too um 98 playing in the band on heady version top 100 top 100 the masses are tough graders but i respect that about them um i mean yeah i i agree with you that ending part like through the last verse and then especially the playing afterward is just yeah tremendously good yeah and what i thought was interesting is like phil tries to land him into that a little earlier than when it actually happens but bob is still like kind of dancing around with weird stuff he's not ready to go back yet so then phil kind of backs off and then he comes back to it about 45 seconds later and then bob's ready and they just like roll right into it yeah like a warm bath and just sink right in <laughs> it's wonderful um i i do think that when it comes to like i don't even know if we talked about this with zach during our um 72 retrospective but like playing dark star the other one birdsong which is the mvp of 72 I think mm-hmm. that there are probably arguments for all four in their own ways, but I've just not come across any plans from 1972 that I didn't like. Yeah. Whether it's like the, you know, 10 minute sprint to the finish lines, one of Europe 72 or these like kind of a, well, these like medium spacey ones, like yep. the one here or the, you know, space, real spacey, spacey ones, 28 minute ones or yeah. whatever. Yeah. All of them in 72 are are excellent. Yeah. The next song is also very good. It's it's Loser. So my note here is you could put this up as a good example of Loser and even the most ardent Loser heads would not be mad at you. Like, hmm. it's just a... Yeah. Like, if, if someone played this and they were like, oh, this is the album cut of Loser, you would be like, it sounds live. Is it live? No, okay. I guess it's the album version then. Shit, I have no idea. So like that to me is like just how clean they played this song and what just like a sturdy, steady version it is. Yeah, I thought the best sturdy, steady player for this loser was Bob. His rhythm work was excellent throughout. He's doing like little flares and little like triple hits of notes that are just just perfect. And then I listened to it once without headphones on and I kind of lost what I heard with heads- headphones was Keith's like subtle notes in the sweet spots of the song mm. that are kind of lost if you like play it on a speaker. Um, so I was like, oh, didn't catch that the first time around. Okay. Um, other than that, Bob is just, he he got the gold medal for this song. He was He was pristine. Shout out to Bob. Yeah, you can definitely lose Keith. Um, I agree. I, the most clearly that I could hear him was with noise canceling headphones on, with mm-hmm. even just like with my AirPods, or like you said with speakers. You can't pick him up as well. And and I will say on this first disc, he's not there a lot. I mean, he he's there at the end of playing, and he's really there for deal. And other than that, he's not that prominent on this whole first disc after loser we have a rare set one closer johnny be good they only did it 18 times to close set one this was the first time since april 71 and the last time until after their hiatus that they closed the set one with uh with a johnny be good and it's a good version i think it's probably 
I guess worth comparing like did you enjoy this or Promised Land more of the first set berries? Hmm. I think I enjoyed the Johnny B. Good a little bit better. Um, and I think the crowd did too. I agree but with that. By a definitely. nose, I'm going to give it to the Johnny B. Good. I'm going to take the Promised Land just because then we get both of our bases covered. Oh, there you go. Uh, um, but I do think that they were they were both good in their ways like i said something that i love in promised land is when jerry has this like playful noodly sound that he starts working with the only way i can describe it is like carnival-esque whereas johnny b good to me is more just more of a i guess straight ahead rocker um it's yeah, like there it feels like there's less space in johnny b good to like do anything other yeah. than play the the standard notes that they play every single time it starts picking up and then it's rolling downhill like an avalanche. And, um, I felt like this one had some good momentum, some good heat behind it. And it was a really energetic way. Like the party dance vibes that we keep talking about, like it fit that to a T to end set one. Any other notes on that or on any more of set one before we get into set two? Uh, the number 51 Johnny be good on heady version, which is surprisingly the highest, just strictly number, not like rate percentage or anything like that. The highest number ranked song of set one. Okay. Interesting. All right. So that concludes set one, 11 tracks uh, across two discs. Pretty good set. I think. I think so too. Um, the plane and the bird song, especially real standout moments um, and, yeah. and bigger, more interesting jam packed. And I mean that like literally jam filled songs than you, than we have often gotten on first sets. So that was, that was really cool. Set two begins with a cat rider, Dave, uh, China cat sunflower into I know you rider. This is just a pristine version of China cat. Um, Jerry soloing around 620 was unique to me among China cats. And I love what Bobby's doing with them around that part. It reminds me of like the airy playing that they'd bust out on some early eyes the following winter where they just give it a little bit more space. And um, then Bobby is the first one who I think starts leading them into rider with like 15 seconds left in this track. Then Phil and Jerry pick it up right around the same time. It's not the absolute smoothest transition you've ever heard, but it's pretty damn good. I mean, you know, I'm not going to say it's like the best one that's ever happened, but it is, I mean, it's quite satisfying. And, um, I think that the, the China cat lead in, um, all, all the playing is just really good. Yeah, I agree with that. I also noted that six minute mark. Um, but I also noted the couple minutes before that, the four to five minute mark on China is something else.
I agree the transition is I give it an eight out of ten. Like it's it's good. There's I think maybe one little hiccup that I caught. And then other than that, um, it was like for me, what I heard, I heard like Phil and then Bobby and then Jerry, like push pushing us into the transition. Um oh, interesting. In the rider half, I I really liked what Billy was doing on the drums. That was kind of the first time I really thought that he he elevated a song to the stratosphere with like these little snare flares at like the end of random measures. They weren't offbeat. It was just like at random counts. He was just like, you know, adding little pops here and there. And then Jerry had this like, I called it offense mode playing. Like he wasn't sitting back and, you know, building his Indian beat string. He was like attacking the, the rider playing. Um, yeah. Number 84 cat rider on heady version. Wow. I, yeah, he's Jerry is burning like from like the four minute mark on, he's got this kind of twangy tone. Yeah. Rider I part think of that's, this. that helped like offensive mode, like it, uh, like a aggressive twang. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I really liked his playing too. I also, um, I got to give uh, Phil and Keith some shouts because you talked a lot about Billy. Phil is loving his background vocals on, on Ryder. He's oh, like yeah. really emphatic <laughs> in his singing, which I'm here for. And I'm also loving his bass on this song. He sounds really good. Around 120, Keith has this really lovely little phrase that he works in that I think is fantastic. Um, so shout out to him as well. I also like Jerry's talking to the crowd which I think is at the end of Ryder, yeah. where he's like, no, 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 I'm talking to the monitor. And then <laughs> someone says something else. And he goes, oh, well, in that case, hello to you. Um, and then he's like, I think, you know, the bass is really loud. I'm like, yeah, where have you been the first 12, 13 songs? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I thought that that was a nice little stage chatter moment. Um, our friend Zach, as you may have heard, if you've listened to his episodes, that's one of his favorite things about 72 is that it's an era where there's still a quite a bit of stage banter um, compared to later eras. After we get done with that little stage chatter, we go into friend of the devil. The, you also asked me how many times this one had been played. And so I'm just going to tell you off the top. It's been, they played it 310 times live. Mm. And I think this was, this was a nice version. Keith and Bobby's interplay in the beginning is really, really good. Really good. And then Bobby throughout this song is just great. Like Jerry's vocal delivery is really good, but I don't know. Bob's sound is just really good. He has this little solo around two thirty That's really nice. And then Jerry uses that as like a trampoline to go even higher and do something. I mean, potentially even better. And then the other thing is, Billy sounds like he has three hands on this song. It's like, how is this one drummer dead with what he's doing? He's keeping the tempo riding on his cymbal and then doing some really interesting, weird things with the toms seemingly while he's keeping that cymbal going. So I don't really know how he did that, but um, more power to the man because this is a, a really nice performance by him. I thought I agree with, with the drumming to your point about Bobby for like the first two minutes of the song. I don't know what he was doing but I, i'm not i'm not saying that in a bad way i, I it felt like he was kind of like playing his own song and then he goes into that solo that you talk about but i was like i was like huh this is interesting and it sounded really good but i was like doesn't it feel like he's playing friend of the devil it kind of felt like he was like doing this own little creative improv and then he went into that solo and then he was kind of back into 
back into normal after he was off on his own journey. And I'm wondering if that's like why you liked it so much was he was doing something I had never heard him do before. Cause I don't know what he was playing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, you could be right. That tends to be what I really find satisfying with Bob's playing is when he <laughs> does very, very unique things for a rhythm. Yeah. When he's not just keeping the rhythm, he's just, he's on his own yeah. path and he's doing his own thing. He really was. And that's not a knock on him. Like it sounded really good. No, it's what makes him him. Yeah. And it makes him a singular rhythm guitar player. And I imagine, I know, I know your main gripe with the song is they slowed it down and it's not your favorite anymore, but did you like this kind of more upbeat version? Yeah. It's after the hiatus. That's when they start mm, to get it gotcha. too slow for, for my liking. So this one, yeah, I was more than, more than happy with this tempo. You liked it. Masses liked it. Number 28, Friend of the Devil on Heidi version. Top 10%. Love mm-hmm. it. Good stuff. Well, the the next song that we get on disc two is Jack Straw. Uh, this is another one that I just I don't have a ton of notes on. I think it's just a really it's a very solid Jack Straw. Billy's drumming is really excellent. Um, there are a couple standout moments from him, and it's just a, a nice version of a song that they they played a lot. And so I think familiarity in this instance, mm-hmm. um, maybe maybe a bit like Loser. It's just like yeah, this is just a really very solid Jack Straw. It's not their best, but it's good my notes on it were it it feels kind of late in the show for jack straw right like mid set two feels feels late it does um and then my other note is that there are multiple moments in this jack straw where like both guitarists and phil are like holding notes and chords and like letting it ring out and they're all perfectly in tune and it like the note holds for like two to three seconds that was noteworthy to me because the dead don't usually do that. Like usually someone like Phil or Bobby is like noodling around or playing, you know, an extra note or Jerry is soloing. And it sounded, it sounded strange, not bad, just strange that there were like multiple like holds on notes that were like in tune and almost sounded like they were tuning while playing that like that prominent of them all playing the exact same note. Um, so that was noteworthy to me. And I can see you uh, scrounging around for not what I asked about. Like, isn't this kind of late and set to for Jack Straw? Yeah, I am scrounging around over here um, because I think that you are right. So you're, you are exactly right. Um, this was only the sixth time they had ever played it in set two. Whoa. And it was like, yeah, it was like the 50th time they had played it. So huh. the first time they played it in set two was during the Europe tour. And then they did it a couple times there and a couple times in the summer afterward. And then this one. Um, so it, it is interesting that they started dipping it in here because then they kept it up throughout like 
more of 72 and 73. Um, and then by the time it got like later in their career, um, the, they only played it in the second set, like three or four times in the eighties and nineties. So, um, yeah, interesting. Good catch by you. It, it did, it did seem a bit late. Um, but perhaps it didn't seem as jarring as what came next on disc two. I'm going to let you get on your soapbox about how much you dislike <laughs> when they break up uh, the set, yeah. because the next song in this concert was he's gone. But the next song that we hear on disc two is Casey Jones, because we get um, the third part of this show, the last two songs of set two, and then the encore for space reasons, those are squeezed onto the end of disc two instead of disc three. Yes. Um, and this, this deeply bothered you. <laughs> I did not enjoy that. And I think 90% of the reason I did not enjoy that is because if you, if you knew nothing about the show, when you listen to that, you would not know that you would think they went Jack straw into Casey Jones into sugar man, just, just mid set two. So like, let the people, I don't know. And I don't know how you notate that, but also after listening to the plane and listen to the show, I'm over it. Do you want to talk about he's gone next? Or do you want to talk about the discs proper? Let's, let's talk about he's gone next just cause it's gonna, you're right. It is strange that there, that it's not notated anywhere. Like on the back of the, of the, cd it just says jacks seven jack straw eight casey jones nine sugar magnolia ten one more saturday night and same with on the disc it's not like it says you know that it's out of order and that is a bit strange i feel like they usually know i feel that. like they do too so like i saw that and i was like huh jack straw casey jones sugar mag like and then the closing with el paso <laughs> what's going on yeah. with this show <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So okay, let's let's um let's put a pin in it. We'll come back to Casey and Sugar Mag and um, one more Saturday night. But let's go to disc three now. There's only six songs on disc three. Well, you'll understand why when we talk about a space issue. Right. So um the first track is He's Gone, which again they played after they played Jack Straw. Uh this is this is a fine version if he's gone. Jerry's solo around 4.30 is just my favorite in my head. Um, I always think of that as the Jerry making it cry solo in this song. Um, I just love the emotion that he rings out of his guitar in that one. And then at 10.15, he has this second very soulful and strong solo. Um, I think that he really just hits the mark on both in different ways. And it it makes for what I think is a really satisfying he's gone. Right before that first moment that you talked about um, at the four minute mark, Keith gave us a little, little perfect piano serenade before Jerry launched into that first solo. And then the plateau of the jam section near the end had interesting guitar work, good stuff on the piano and really purposeful drumming that like the drumming, like kind of built up when it needed to. And then recognized that, you know, the, the noodling was was backing off so then they backed off and then they like rebuilt up when they had to and I, I thought that was really impressive too yeah i agree that that ending jam i was like "Ooh, this cd is off too because i'm always when i'm listening to these cds part of me is thinking dave's going to ask me that if these are rolling off a cliff which one am i going to grab and i need to have an answer mm. to that question when it comes up and so i've got a head for like 
you know, what, what CD is the strongest. And when I got to the end of this, he's gone. I was like, all right, well, that's up there with the China cat um, at the beginning of disc two as like the strongest entree into the disc. Let's see where we go. Um, and I was pretty satisfied with where we went. The next song was trucking. And I, I really like that. There's just a very short pause at the end of he's gone. And then they go right into trucking. Um, like a lot of the other songs on this release, it's just a really steady version i have it as a nine out of ten um because it's just like a very strong trucking um it becomes an absolute rocker for a bit around like the 515 mark and then they slow it back down a bit but i just thought that it was a a really good trucking i completely agree they're ripping at that 515 mark explosive symbols just outrageous guitar playing and then they like bring it all the way back down then roar right up at the end. I think a nine out of 10 is, is appropriate. It's a, I think it's a great, great truck in and something that just kind of warmed my heart. Um, as I did my research for the show for he's gone and truck in it's the number 101 he's gone on heady version and the number 101 truck in on a heady version. How cool is that? Yeah, that's nice. That That feels right. That's good stuff. Um, all right. So after he's gone in trucking, one third of the disc track wise, not close to one third of the disc lengthwise, <laughs> um, we get a two minute and 20 second long drums. So I'm going to tee you up here. Drums and the next track, should they have been one song or is it better that they were separated as drums and the other one? Well, I don't have an issue with them being two different tracks. I can understand the point of you're already going to have a 35 minute other one. What, what's a 37 minute the other yeah. one? Yeah. What's a couple yeah. minutes between us friends. Um, I don't mind the, the reason that I don't mind the delineation here is because I think one of the defining points of earlier, the other ones is like the fill bass roar and the and that's so clear here that I don't mind it being like, this is Billy's time on the drums. And then we've got that clear roaring on the bass. Yeah, I agree. I think that, um, I mean, also they, the guys could have left the stage, you know, it's hard. Oh, to know Yeah. That's a great one. Yeah. This far down the road. But I do think that there are some drums where they're in this range of, well, I think it's especially prevalent in the late sixties where it would be like a 30 second or one minute long drums in some of the shows that we've heard. And then I'm like, I mean, at that point, just call it the other one. <laughs> you know, it's, it is an introduction to the other one. This one, um, I do think that it stands on its own two feet a little bit more, but your point about Phil's, um, Phil's intro is, I think that's what really kind of clinches it for me. So yeah, I, I think you're right. I do feel like though, like Bill is playing around the other one theme a bit and what he's doing in drums. And so I think that that also kind of maybe, you know, it's obviously purposeful because he knows that that's what they're going to do afterward. Um, and then, yeah, that, that opening to the other one is just triumphant. Phil is great. And then Jerry just like, Jerry starts out really hot and Phil is just keeping it at like a rolling boil um, with what he's doing. So I thought a great, great intro to the other one. Yeah. 
how do you want to break this up? I mean, I got, I got quite a bit of notes about a 35 minute other one. Um, yeah, just, just go off. <laughs> I'm going to give you the floor. You, you say what you will and then I'll, I'll, I'll come in after. Okay. You. I mean, how about this? I'll take the first third. It's an absolutely breathtaking, strong start with Jerry going crazy on, um, kind of like what, it, um, what I was talking about earlier with like the offensive playing, um, like an offensive minded, a West coast offense, Indian bead string of notes until we get to the 1030 mark, which man, I know Jerry is more of a noodler and less of like a Hendrix shredder, but what he's doing from 1030 to 1130, I mean, he is just going guitar hero, rock God shredder mode in that, that little minute where he like, he just goes with a, a rock riff and repeats it and like builds to it, builds to it, builds to it and, and just nails it. I love that little, and that's like kind of right before it goes back to the other one. And then Bob sings for the first time at the 12 minute mark. So that little minute, minute and a half right before Bob sings, I thought was, I thought was the best part of this 35 minute saga. So I have, as I look at my notes, I have the most notes about the first 12 minutes and then like the last nine minutes. So I think that my notes would agree with you <laughs> that the first 12 is probably like the high point. Uh, I agree that like, so the, the Indian bead string that Jerry starts working on around like one fifteen is just as 72. The other one as it gets, it's like, prototypical 1972 the other one then he goes into this little descending riff around two minutes builds back up the band finds their way into this really spacey jam although it has some really as you were just saying really intense peaks um but for me like so the first verse happens like you said around 12 minutes and then i really like how dark the tone shifts after verse one jerry has this like haunting droning guitar sound bill is pounding on those toms and it gets like a much more ominous vibe and then around like 14 minutes right around there phil and i think keith like bring them into an outright space segment like if you heard that in space you'd be like oh okay this is just space (laughs) um they kind of stay there and there's some really cool standout moments of feedback and phil bombs and then Jerry starts playing this more optimistic riff around like 2410 is what I'm what I noted. Bob picks it up. Billy starts back up on his hi-hat and then around the edge of his snare, which then gives it a more um uplifting sound. Not uplifting, but like a more upbeat sound, a more happy, like a less scary sound, <laughs> maybe um yeah. around that time. Um one thing that I want to call out in particular, and I'm going to drop a sample in of this. Maybe we need a couple samples of this song because it's so Ooh, long. Yeah, maybe. But at the 25 minute mark, Keith is playing this this round. It's like this high pitched little ditty that feels way ahead of its time to me. So I'm going to play that right now.
if that was the beat to like an ace of bass or aqua song in the early 90s like if that was the beginning of barbie girl or something nobody would have batted an eye it sounded infinitely familiar to me like i was like oh this is from like some 80s or 90s song but obviously it's not it's keith playing (laughs) at the 25 minute mark of a 35 minute long the other one on a random night in 1972 (laughs) but i just in a very long song with a lot of peaks and a lot of noteworthy things that one to me i was just like whoa like i don't know why i like that so much but i even brought jane and i was like does this sound familiar to you like what is this (laughs) So I don't expect you to have notes about that specific moment because it's so niche and it's like 10 seconds of a 35 minute version. But I will use that as an opportunity to ask you what you thought about that middle space section and then the ending section of the last 10 minutes. Well, like you, my notes in the middle are, are, are not, there's not a lot of them. Um, there were just out to space. Um, it, it is space. I think, I think it's fair to say that this would be like a space sandwich with other one bread. And then coming into the end, the re-engagement with the other one proper after 30 minutes is a, is a welcome return to form. Like after being out in space for so long, even if it's like a little more mellow and I don't want to say it feels tired, but it, it, they are moving at like a noticeably slower tempo. And at the end, there's also, there's also some prankster-ishness going on there because Jerry starts back up on the other one theme and the crowd is very enthusiastic about that. They're like, yay, yay. And, and they're just like, nah, no, no. And they, <laughs> they let it fade away. And then Jerry's like kind of quietly playing it and Billy's bopping around on the kit, but no one else is doing anything. And then Phil comes back in and then Keith and then Phil's trusty old baseline comes back in around 3130 and then we get to that dramatic crescendo um, to this long, strange, the other one trip. But yeah, I, I agree. I, I was just like, when then they came back to it, I was like, Oh my, I almost forgot what song we were listening to. And this has been a, a voyage. <laughs> yeah. It's been a while, long, strange and good. Number 80, other one on heady version. Oh, Okay. I, I do also one last thing. I love this little bookend riff that Jerry tacks on at the very end. The crowd loved this performance and um, you can, you can hear it over their, their applause. Why wouldn't they? I mean, even with this like dancey groovy night, it is the grateful dead in 1972. You had to expect that you were going out to space at some point. <laughs> so um, I, I think that they were here for that after the other one. To be honest with you, a lot of what comes next kind of seems like an anticlimax to me because we just got what we got. Yeah. But credit to the guys for keeping keeping it going and trying to wring some more great music out of this night. And I think sometimes they hit it. I think it's a beautiful Stella Blue that comes after the other one. And I think it's my favorite 72 version of Stella Blue that I've heard. This is only the 12th time they had played this song out of 329. So they were still finding it a bit, but I feel like they have found it in this song. I just think it's a really gorgeous version. Oh, I don't have much more to add. I I will say number 105 Stella Blue on Hetty version, but that's high praise for this one. I think that maybe as we go along and this show gets a little bit more love now that it's been officially released, that may rise in the estimation of the Stella Blue heads among us. I think many of them will rise. I agree. Um, And I think we are coming to, not yet, but soon, my nominee for 
what will rise the most. Um, but stay tuned. Okay. Interesting. So the last track then on disc three is not the one I would imagine you're talking about. It's El Paso. Correct. Mostly a set one, <laughs> mostly a set one song throughout time, kind of like Jack Straw, but they dabbled with it as a second set song, especially in this little window in 72, starting like really right before Vanita and then lasting through much of the fall. They were playing it in the second set. You'll remember um, the Dark Star into El Paso and Vanita as you know, probably the most famous example of that. I, I got nothing on this one. It's a fine El Paso, nothing more, nothing less for me. How many times did they go from Stella Blue into El Paso? Seven times. This was the fourth. Coincidentally, all but one were in, oh no, all but two were in 1972 and then twice in 73 and never again. And then never again. Wow. Yep, that was it. So yeah, definitely that's a good point. It is a, a bit of a rarity to go Stella Blue into El Paso. Um, and then after that we go, you and I are traveling back to disc two <laughs> for the last three songs of the night. Yes. Casey Jones, Sugar Magnolia, and then an encore of one more Saturday night. So Casey Jones, I'm going to guess that this is the one that you think is going to rise up the estimations of the masses. You would be incorrect um ah. it's actually the next one sugar mags but okay for this casey jones it's a fairly long one it's over seven minutes long and we get another phil bass solo which i mean much appreciated a little two for one special. yeah uh there's a walk down around the three minute mark that what it kind of gets lost in the noise since it sounds like everyone's trying to do a little too much like they're they're back on their feet they're little rested after the 35 minute other one and a couple slower tunes to get back on their feet. Keith goes like crazy in this little walk down that I'm talking about, but you might miss it. Cause like, like the drums and Jerry and Phil and Bob are like really trying to do too much. Um, but what Keith did was great. And then is it right around two forty when that happens? It could be, I wrote around three minutes, so could be, okay. um, and then Phil just blows out all the speakers with his roaring bass at the end, which I mean, what else is new for this show? Yeah, uh, you it's almost like you were reading my page when you just read those <laughs> notes. So I have nothing to add on that. I thought it was a really good Casey Jones, though. This is going to surprise you, I think, because it surprised the hell out of me. They only played Casey Jones into or before Sugar Mag 10 times. And this mm. was the... This is the eighth of those 10. Hmm. And how about this? This is only the fifth time they played Sugar Mag to close set two. Whoa, that actually, that surprises me more. Yeah, five down, 375 to go. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not like this was a new song. It had been out for two years. I was I was very surprised by that. Um, it's like they had just learned like, oh, this is a tool that we can bust out of our tool yeah. belt. Play a little eight minute, sugar mag to send the people home happy i thought it was a very good sugar mag but it sounds like you're even higher so tell me I'm why pretty high on this um phil i mean he was loud with his bass before at the end of casey jones he's loud on the mic here and i know you talked about that earlier in the show and we appreciated phil screaming his heart out on the backing vocals i i feel like i haven't talked about jerry a lot today uh, i feel like i've been focused on phil and bobby for most of this analysis, but 
Yeah, definitely. I kids. know. I'm so sorry, but my <laughs> goodness, his his casual playing at the beginning of this, like that patient tiger waiting to pounce, and then when he does pounce, like all of a sudden he's going for it. He really goes for it first in the pre-coda solo, and then just the rest of the song, he is on it. The sunshine daydream has a ton of energy, and then. We haven't talked about her enough either. Donna gets a shout out at the end. We haven't talked about her at yeah. all because she's not on this show that much. No. It's a bit disappointing. Um, she gets a well-deserved shout out at the end. Love that. Just really, really enjoyed the energy that they brought with the Sugar Mags. Um, it's number 82 on Heady version. And it's my nominee to kind of climb up with the help of the official release a little bit more. If you agree with Dave... Go vote for it on Heady Version. Let's make it 82 with a bullet. Yeah, I agree. It's a really good version. I do. I, I could have used more Donna this show. Um, she does get a deserved shout out um, in Sugar Mag. I mean, she should have because she was waiting around for like three hours before she really got to do anything that was that interesting. <laughs> um, but um, hey, she got to watch a great Grateful Dead show. Probably do some dancing too. So that's not so bad. The encore is One More Saturday Night, the most common encore of 1972. They closed 35 of the 86 shows with One More Saturday Night. I have no way of telling you whether this one is better or worse than the others because I think it's just fine. <laughs> um, there are so many 72 One More Saturday Nights. I didn't have anything that I wanted to particularly talk about with this one. I, I'll talk about Bob like literally losing his voice as he's screaming um, at the end of the song. <laughs> yeah. That was fun. Especially because they had a show the next night. Yeah. <laughs> There's like a chaotic ending with like, I think Jerry like stepped on the wah pedal either by accident or to just make this really, really weird, but just some cool chaos at the end. And then there's like a bonus encore with like Keith and Jerry noodling around. And then Bob's like, has anyone seen our, our bass player or Jerry's like, has anyone seen our bass yeah. player? And Bob is like, he says, he's halfway to Tijuana. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so you, you thought it was an indiscernible one more Saturday night, number 60 on heady version, which I feel like is quite high with just how often they played this. Well, I mean, this is a very good era for the song too. So that makes sense. I'll, it also might be a little bit of that extracurricular stuff with that. I am totally blanking on the name, but it's like a patriotic old standby that they start playing. One year in chorus when I was in elementary school, we sang like all like patriotic songs because that's I think it was the year that that nine eleven happened, so perhaps not shockingly, and that was one of them. But I have no idea what the song is called. I just recognized it as like yeah you know, when we were singing like the Air Force theme song. <laughs> that's not the right <laughs> term, but <laughs> you know, um, and uh, you're in the army now. Well, yeah, your chorus teacher went deep on patriotic cuts. Oh, we went real yeah. deep. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that that little, that little exit thing was pretty funny. So Zach and I both rated the 910 show above this when we did our fall rankings last year, but I don't think that there's a good 
a good copy of 910. And I do think that 99 is very worthy of a release. So I'm overall, I'm, I'm glad that we got this one. I think that your analysis in the beginning was pretty spot on. I think that it's going to be one that stays in the rotation and it's just like a sneaky, solid release. When we do our annual Dave's Picks ranking, when the fourth volume comes out this year, I would not be shocked if we were both like, at the end of the day, that's number one. Yeah. So we'll see. We shall see. Um, but usually in these experiences about Dave's picks, you have some final questions. Um, Dave, for me, I teased it a little bit earlier. What do you got? I do. I mean, we will play our standard game, which if you've never joined us, um, I will ask Alex what song he will take from any show. We do this every show to put on his imaginary, imaginary playlist of Grateful Dead songs. But with Dave's picks, with the official CD releases, we get to play a bonus game, which is if all three discs were rolling to the edge of a cliff and you could only dive and save one of them, which disc would you save and why? Oh, you cheater. Uh, He's holding up the bonus disc. (laughs) Wow. If I could only take one disc from this release, one disc that I received when I got this in the mail, I'm taking the bonus disc. Okay. Let me read you the track listing. From 91972 in Jersey City, New Jersey, Bertha into Greatest Story Ever Told, Birdsong, Mississippi Half Step, Uptown Toodaloo, Broke Down Palace. Great. Fantastic stuff. Then from Folsom Field in Boulder on 9372, you got a Cat Rider, Brown Eyed Women, Truckin', Cold Rain and Snow, and Ramble on Rose. 11 tracks of heat. You get a bird song and a China Cat Sunflower in I Know You Rider. You get a Broke Down Palace, a nice somber little um, sl- slow one. Brown Eyed Women later in 72 when they were really hitting their stride with it. A great Ramble on Rose. I'm taking the bonus disc. Wow. You snake, you. <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit of a cop-out. And when I listened to it and realized that I was going to take that, I was like, he's not going to be thrilled about this. But I think it's the right call. What disc are you taking? No, I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm, I'm happy you enjoyed it. And it, it leaves me guilt-free with saving disc two, which opens with that excellent plane in the band, has a, a really, really good China rider a really good friend of the devil as we talked about um so i'm i'm happy to take the middle disc just to dave let me give you uh some some applause for that because the track i'm taking is friend of the devil you might look ah. at the set list and go oh he's going to one of them maybe maybe you will take the uh 35 minute other one but for me the friend of the devil like you're saying, I've never heard Bob doing stuff like he was doing on this on this song. And Friend of the Devil on the album cut too, it's Bobby and Jerry's interplay that makes that song, as well as the the additional player players, I think, that they have on that. But for me, I thought this was just like a great Friend of the Devil. I am sad not to take the bird song, the plan, and the other one. All are great, but in a year where they played a lot of really, really good versions of all of those songs. There are not as many great friends, friends of the devil. So I'm taking friend of the devil. It's maybe an off the beaten path selection, but I'm happy to have it on my imaginary playlist. Which song are you taking? So I was torn between, between two, two picks here. Um, The second, 
might surprise you. I was torn between the bird song and the trucking um, to take on my imaginary playlist. Something about the trucking really spoke to me the first time I listened to it. And I thought that it was a, uh, a really just a, a solid performance in a overall solid show. The, what influenced me to make my pick is there are good truckins in all eras, but this is a great bird song from the bird song era. So I'm going to take the bird song from disc one as my song. Unimpeachable logic. I got no notes. Good selection. Good selection. All right. Well, that's going to do it for you and I, for this edition of working man's pod. Don't worry, though. We are going to be back at a fast and furious rate over the next couple months <laughs> as we yes. get into our DNC in 23 episodes. The first, uh, well, I guess technically the third of which is going to come out this Saturday. Uh, we have two that are already out. You can go check them out. One about Dead & Co's you know, one-off show at Jazz Fest, and then another about the greatest Dead & Company show that has been played to date at Barton Hall on 5823. <laughs> Go listen to our show with Howard Weiner uh, or my show with Howard Weiner about that. Buy his book. It's our, Yeah, go buy his book, The Grateful Pilgrimage. Um, we get a shout out in it, which was pretty cool. That was really cool. Thank you to Howard for including us in your story and your journey. That was really, really touching to me to be um, included in that. Yeah, I agree. And I think we cut out that he told us the title the last time he was on in October. Um, cause we, no, said, I think, I think I asked him, him and yeah. And he, Oh, you did ask him. I remember that, but yeah, I, yeah. I, I thought that we cut it out so that we didn't spoil it, but I could Oh no, we, that was an exclusive, that was a WP exclusive reveal. We <laughs> oh, left it nice. In. Hell yeah. Okay. Well then that's even better. So, um, with that, we're going to be recording a just a ton of dead and company content over the next couple of months. So you're probably not going to hear much more grateful dead stuff from us for a little while, but um, don't worry. We'll, we'll drop into it every now and again, when we have something interesting going on, we've got some plans cooking up with our friend Zach to talk about a really long grateful dead show from summer 73 for its mm -hmm. 50th anniversary. So maybe you can find that on his feed. We'll see, but, but there's going to be no shortage of Dave and I um, either on this feed or, or at the concerts. If you're at some dead and co shows, come up and see us. We'll probably be wearing, or at least one of us will be wearing a, a, working man's pod shirt so if you see that you've got a pretty good chance that it's one of the two of us come say hi um and and we'd love to talk to you about um really any old thing all right well on that note and until next time we will bid you good night That's it, that's it. You got it.